I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week, the European Central Bank said it would offer cheap loans to banks in the eurozone. It's likely to help in particular Italian banks, but manufacturing numbers don't look great anywhere in Europe right now. So it's a stimulus. The ECB is worried about growth. But can Europe's central bank possibly ever do enough for Europe's weakest countries? This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Road Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This week, Mark Blythe of Rhodes and I wanted to know whether the eurozone is inherently flawed or whether it's fixable. We recorded before the ECB's announcement, but we ended up with accidentally the perfect pair of guests. Valtraud Schelkli of the London School of Economics argues that the euro has been good on net and can get better. Ashoka Modi of Princeton says it's unfixable and always has been. The variable here is what economists call productivity. It's a measure of how much workers contribute relative to how much they cost. Let's say you're just focused on cost. You can give everyone a pay cut to become more competitive, which is somewhere between incredibly painful and completely impossible. Or you can depreciate your currency unless you're in the eurozone. That's what's at stake here. So we started with a basic question. Mario Draghi, head of the ECB, said in a speech this month that the euro has been good on net for everyone. Was he right? Here's Valtraut. I think he got it right in the sense of independence was an illusion, which he actually really says, and sovereignty in the Hobbesian sense is also an illusion. But by sharing sovereignty, you can try to gain more leverage in trade negotiations and have more impact with your monetary policy in financial markets, but with others. And it's not only small countries who have that problem. I mean, the Danish finance minister, I think, uh, put it very well. He said there are two kinds of countries, countries that are small and countries that don't know yet that they are small. (laughs) And that is true for about all perhaps 10 countries uh, in the world who have some monetary sovereignty in the sense of they can set an interest rate and then the exchange rate or whatever they want to affect uh, reacts to that in a predictable way. The rest must follow somebody else's monetary policy. Um, the taper tantrum when the Fed tried to to raise interest rates was a recent example of that. So uh, I you know, strongly object to this kind of wordplay uh, of sovereignty and independence. Uh, the I can I can understand a little bit on trade agreements being uh, jointly negotiated, but on monetary policy, the key thing is the exchange rate, and every country benefits from an exchange rate that is flexible. It doesn't matter what the size of the country is. Recently, we have seen examples of Turkey and Argentina had run up lots of problems. Exchange rate depreciation has helped them enormously in correcting their external balances. The same is true in in Europe. 
Poland during the crisis was uh, benefited enormously at the height of the crisis from a sharp depreciation of the zloty. So the notion that there is some mythical sovereignty that is shared uh, to me is complete nonsense. What do you think of the argument that before the euro was launched, that there was a de facto eurozone and it was just countries were being affected by the rate setting policies of the German Bundesbank? That and is that the creation of the euro gave them at least some nominal control, some input, some ability to be on the board and be part of the discussion of where those rates are rather than taking them in the way that emerging markets uh, all around the world uh, that rely on the dollar for external funding take the decisions of the Fed with no control over them whatsoever. So that is correct. But the choice being posed as between the old exchange rate mechanism of fixed but uh, adjustable exchange rates versus the euro is a false choice. The The choice was to go to floating exchange rates. And th that's what happened after the breakdown of the Bretton Woods. The world went to floating exchange rates. I understand that everyone does not get complete sovereignty even in floating exchange rates. But it is a lot more than the the sovereignty you have either in the fi fixed but adjustable or in uh, the in the euro where it completely goes away i mean just 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 for a moment think about this that we are now approaching what could be a, a prolonged recession in the eurozone and you have italy and Italy is a country that has zero to negative productivity growth. Its exchange rate uh, has remained essentially fixed relative to the Deutsche Mark for 20 years. It has no monetary policy. It has no fiscal policy. And it's going to deal with a recession with absolutely no macroeconomic instrument. At a moment like this, an exchange rate depreciation is, is extraordinarily important. Now, Italians will waste away exchange rate depreciation and, and not gain anything other than a temporary reprieve. But that doesn't mean, that does simply does not mean that an exchange rate depreciation is not valuable to countries at moments, especially at critical moments of pressure. Ashoka, after the breakdown of Bretton Woods, first of all, uh, we never went to a world of floating exchange rates. And you have to explain why. We went to a world of trying to manage exchange rates with the eruption of violent crises they, from time to time. They actually went up a lot. Banking crises went up a lot because, of course, uh, exchange rate changes make banks very vulnerable to their, you know, mismatch, currency mismatch on their liability and, and the asset side to then go belly up. Um, the fear of floating is a constant theme in the literature. Now, you can say they are all stupid and only I and a few guys in the IMF, although the IMF has changed its, its views on that all the time, um, we know and they should just follow it. But if you have that problem that's called the original sin in the literature, namely that you cannot issue debt in your own currency, that is typically true for business. In some countries, it's also true for government. Then you simply are so vulnerable to these attacks where when you devalue, you revalue the debt of your country and you're straight away uh, in a solvency crisis. Yeah, but what I do not that understand, is an antiquated you know, view. To, to this old argument of if the, the exchange rate were just the, the, the other side of terms of trade, when we live in a world where asset markets are so big relative to the flow markets of trade, uh, that you can still insist on this is such a wonderful instrument that we can all control and, and adjust via a simple devaluation. Yes. Yeah, so, Walter, look, no one is saying this is 
a wonderful instrument that solves all problems. The, the, that, that's just simply a straw man. And the notion that countries manage their exchange rates is, is absolutely true. I agree with that. But managing exchange rates is completely different from making a commitment to a fixed exchange rate or worse, fixing it in perpetuity within a monetary union. India manages its exchange rate. Korea manages its exchange rate. Brazil manages its exchange rate. But they allow depreciation at moments of crisis. The, the notion that therefore exchange rate is, is valueless is, is completely a, a, a non-starter. All the studies that show that yes, global monetary policy, especially said by the Fed is vastly influential on all countries. No one is denying that. No one is denying that. But even so, the studies show that having an independent monetary policy is a desirable macroeconomic tool. And if you don't have it, then what do you have in, in its place? You have nothing. And you then are cornered at moments of crisis in a way that other countries that manage their exchange rates are not cornered because they do not have a commitment to an exchange rate and they're not fixed. Let me, let me jump in here. Let me just put a fine point on what I think Ashoka just said. If I understand correctly, the argument is for Italy specifically, but also more broadly for other countries, um, getting Mario Draghi as the head of the ECB was not worth the price they paid, which was not being able to devalue. Is that? I, I, I don't see what Mario Draghi can do for Italy. <laughs> I mean, okay. you just think about it. Here, here's, the, here's the situation. Between 1970 and 1999, the Italian lira went from 200 lira to the mark to about 1200 at the peak. This was a period in which Italy had positive productivity growth. In the next 20 years, the Italian lira has been fixed to the Deutschmark and Italy has had negative productivity growth. I Italy needs an exchange rate that is 20 to 30 percent cheaper than it is. That's that's the dilemma. You, you, you can have Mario Draghi waving any number of magic wands, but if a country has got negative productivity growth and does not have exchange rate depreciation, it will gradually and slowly implode. That's it. It's, it's as simple as that. Ashoka, I tell you, you could say exactly the same about the United Kingdom. It also had much higher uh, productivity growth in those years. And since then, there's this puzzle, why does productivity not increase? I mean, we can't blame all that on exchange rates. For Italy, I am not and it is a that country that consists of two growth. different... No. No. Let me don't, just don't, briefly don't also this. finish my sentence. Italy consists of two economies, in fact. And for Italian policymakers, there was the debate of whether it is fair, for example, on the north, on any good business in the north, highly competitive, to basically pay the tax of a much higher interest rate because they lived with that currency risk premium forever than their German counterparts. And this is a perfectly sensible consideration to make. But the other is simply, you, you pretend as if we are still living in a world in which basically exchange rates are determined by current account balances and adjust so that current accounts are in balance. But they are not and have never been. Mandel revoked his theory in 1973 and said the exchange rate is actually a uh, a price that has to be stabilized. In other words, when you have, when it is an asset price, it takes away of a degree of freedom from your economic policy. Let me let me jump in here. I want to throw it to Mark in Providence. Mark, jump in. 
So what a conversation. This is great because in a sense, what we're trying to do here is look forward to what happens next with the euro, with the eurozone. And both of you are making exactly the arguments that I hope that you would. And both of them I find incredibly compelling. So as a listener to this conversation, I'm wondering not a sense of who's right, but how can both stories be so plausible? I like to call this the Hotel California problem. Let's assume that Ashoka's right about exchange rates in the sense that it's not the only thing, but if Italy had one, they might do a bit better. Let's just put that on the table. The problem is now you're in a monetary union. It's the Hotel California problem. How do you get out? How would you actually even get to a stage in Europe that if one of the countries, big or small, wanted to have its own exchange rate, how could it get there without causing a bank run? How could it get there without causing massive problems in terms of re-denomination risk? What happens to national savings that are now in a foreign currency? In a sense, don't we need to just accept the fact that the institutional setup means we're stuck with this? So then what happens next? Mark, I think you know my answer. Yes, we are stuck in this. I mean, this is the original sin of the euro. The original sin of the euro is that it will always have one monetary policy that fits none. And you see uh, the monetary policy for uh, Italy is too tight. The nominal interest rate is somewhere in the range of 2.5%. Its uh, inflation rate is about half a percent. So it is a 2% positive real interest rate for a country that has a zero productivity growth. Therefore, monetary policy in the Eurozone will always, in the next several years, be too tight for Italy. Germany, on the other hand, has a negative real interest rate growth. Germany is the stronger economy. Alan Walters pointed this out in 1986, that the euro will amplify existing economic strengths and divergences. It will make matters worse, and it is doing exactly as predicted. Therefore, Italy is in a trap. I, I am not saying that Italy's low productivity growth is because of the euro. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that as long as for whatever internal reasons, if the Italian productivity growth remains where it is, then the euro acts as an additional albatross on Italy. That's as simple as that. I think given where Italy is now and has been before the crisis, namely relatively high debt level and has restructuring problems that have to do with its financial system and how it assists business, how smaller businesses get access to credit and so on. Italy is still better off inside the euro area for the simple reason that, for example, it has stability and it has low interest rates. But of course, a lot has to happen in Italy. And what is to be feared, and the problem is much more political than economic, and this is the point that, that uh, Draghi cannot address, is that sharing sovereignty does not overcome the problem that Italian compatriots of Salvini may not care so much about better monetary policy than the right to make their own mistakes. And so the voters hope they can hold the politicians accountable at the ballot box next time round, probably one to two years if you go by Italian election cycles. And that is true. Salvini et al. can be voted out of power, while Juncker and others cannot. But it is a sure way for Italy or others to impoverish themselves with this, you know, uh, going against the EU. I mean, the pensioners in Italy would be uh, at a poverty level that I don't know how you would, would deal with that. Uh, young Italians would have no uh, a future inside their countries at the moment. They can at least go sometimes out and, and return. 
And Draghi is telling them, you are impoverishing yourself. I just don't know whether he talks past them uh, because he's an economist who is responsible for achieving certain outcomes like a low market interest rate and stable credit supply for viable investments. While I think Italians at the moment have more the problem um, that they they feel not respected, that they feel bossed around by the Germans and therefore ask for self-determination. And this is what I'm being a resident of the UK observe here too. They are about to embrace lower living standards for the promise of taking back control. I think this is fascinating. We very often get caught in a conversation about economics and looking at counterfactuals um, when, in fact, most people don't live in the world where they're measuring GDP or even experiencing GDP in any sort of real way where we could describe it with a number. Um, and, and people are motivated in lots of different ways and not necessarily by uh, interest rates or by uh, inflation or by GDP growth or by even the unemployment level if it doesn't affect them. And this is why, it's for me, it's so fascinating to have political scientists talk to economists. <laughs> um, but Draghi can say, look, here's the counterfactual. We've worked through it. Uh, this is how low GDP growth would have been without the euro. Um, but that ignores the very real scars that are in place after almost 20 years of the euro. So, Mark, walk us through some of those scars, because those matter for people, for voters. So, in brief, you had a real convergence in living standards in the first sort of 10 years of the euro before the crisis. The south caught up with the north in large part, uh, mainly because of capital flows from north to south, fueling consumption spending and investment spending there. You had the massive expansion to the east, first with uh, equity investment and then short-term capital flows following that. And then the crisis had a tremendous impact, first in the east with a very brutal adjustment and then in the south with an equally brutal adjustment. And the net result that has been, as Waltroud says, even higher debts than the debt levels that they went into just now, which if it wasn't for ECB policy, market rates would probably be much, much higher and an even more brutal adjustment would be underway. So let's not forget there is a positive effect of being where they are just now. But at the same time, youth unemployment, particularly in the southern countries, even though it's been going down, is very, very high. Now, asset formation amongst younger cohorts of the population has basically ground to a halt. And the economy, even though it's been growing positively, has been relatively sclerotic overall, uh, even in some of the so-called success stories. So we're at a moment where if Europe goes into a recession now, it's not going in from you know a rip-roaring tear of five years of growth. It's actually quite weak. So to me, the interesting question becomes the new institutions that have been built to basically make the Eurozone more shockproof, uh, a little bit more adaptive if there is a new crisis, is it going to be enough? Just remember that even in those first 10 years, Portugal and Italy did not converge. Portugal's per capita income remained flat and uh, Italy grew a little bit, but it gave up all that growth. So Italy is, both, Italy is a poorer country today than it was 20 years ago. I, I understand that all, all these problems are of Italy's own making, but we knew that Italy has a dysfunctional political economy for the last, since almost the entire post-war period. So there's no news over there eh, that Italy has a dysfunctional economy. As far as uh, the scars are concerned, there are, there are at least uh, three scars. One is that debt levels today are much higher than they were at the start of the previous crisis. Uh, the social anxieties uh, 
in part because of the high youth unemployment, but also because in the post-crisis uh, period, the inequalities which were already increasing have increased even faster. Social mobility has gone down. And the policies that did not work in terms of tight monetary policies and austerity are, are still with us as though nothing has changed. And the the we are at a stage where, yes, we have some band-aids in terms of ESM and and the European Central Bank, but you know, uh, if if there is a crisis, these are heavily constrained and certainly not in a position to deal with the level of uh, that the requirement that will be imposed on them, especially if Italy has a crisis. Ashoka, would you find it plausible to talk about the problems of the United States if we take Detroit or Alabama and places who haven't done so well recently as to be the two cases on which we should measure all, all success in the United States of all the growth and the rise in living standards? Well, that was very unevenly distributed, but still was there in the aggregate. Would you do that? You wouldn't take the, the two most difficult cases as being the measure for, for everything else that, that has been achieved. I think Mark's portrait was, was a fair one. And also in what he then later said, you know, youth unemployment and so on has happened. Why has that happened? Why has also the aggregate gain from European integration not been felt by a lot of Italians? And that is a, a shared problem of mature uh, economies, that the, the lower half has basically not got any gain from the rise in income that was achieved overall. Look, uh, John Mearsheimer just has a new book uh, called The Grand Illusion, I think. And he says that in a group of nations that are independent sovereign nations, cooperation is virtually impossible anytime there are conflicts of interest. And the conflicts of interest will clearly create an incentive for countries to pursue their own agendas, uh, if for no other reason than for survival. So when, when Waltraud says the Germans should trust, the question is, What are the incentives for them to trust uh, by extending deposit insurance? The system of international cooperation requires reciprocal trust, but that reciprocal trust arises only for relatively benign uh, projects such as opening of borders. And even there, there are controversies on matters such as fiscal policy, on bank deposit uh, insurance. Remember that the United States briefly had a confederacy between the War of Independence and the Constitution. In 1787, the U.S. had a constitution which created a federal government which had unlimited rights to tax and had coercive powers over individuals. That is the only way to create a coordination mechanism that comes with that extraordinary authority. The way Europe is set up, especially with the monetary union, the conflicts of interest are endemic to the system. And therefore, to use soft words like trust in a system that is inherently creates distrust uh, for fear that I will have to pay the bills of others is, is just, in my mind, plain wishful thinking. 
That's exactly why we don't do it that way. They don't pay the bills for the others. Ashok Kabon can, of course, portray the things on the one hand like the German disciplinarians do and, at the, uh, and say, you know, also the, the Southern Europeans are basket cases, as you do in your book. But at the same time, they have created a lot of common institutions. You have to explain to me why the United States, after it had created all these wonderful powers, still had a civil war and why its first common national currency was created during the time when the political union had fallen apart and was an imposition by the North on the South. So this kind of creating a, a, a fiscal and a political union before the monetary union is also not a foolproof project. I'm not saying everybody has to do it like the Europeans, but compared to that, the Europeans haven't done so badly. Now, trust is something that I don't mean in a soft sense. That's what I just said. You have to have institutions that allow you to go forward incrementally and it has to be rebuilt. That is one of the lasting scars of this crisis. You can't just say today to the Germans, but you have to give in and, and do all these wonderful things that the Euro federalists would want. They just won't and they would ri risk a kind of upheaval in Germany that would really uh, threaten the whole project and not only in Germany, I think in other countries too. I want to talk about this issue of trust. I'm going to throw it to Mark, uh, which is, you know, what happens? Uh, let's let's just give one scenario. Uh, China's economy uh, has a hard landing and uh, Germany's exports suffer. The whole eurozone suffers. Um, what happens to the fragile trust that exists around the institutions of the eurozone now in that crisis? Where does that trust go? So the way I think about trust in this is basically linguistic. So if, if you think about to trust, you know, the, the Italian would be credere, belief, faith, right? And then on the other hand, you know, if you think about sort of the northern attitude to the, towards this, exemplified by, you know, the German word for debt, which is the same as guilt, then you end up with one side that looks for kind of reciprocal trust, a moral hazard frame, looking out for the fact that you could be cheated. And then the other side seems to want sort of, un, un, you know, unlimited trust, just trust us, which of course creates these very issues of conflict of interest, which Ashoka has been talking about. But to me, this let's, let's move beyond this a little bit. We have to take stock of the fact that politics at the, the national level in the core countries has irrevocably shifted. So we've managed to see the rise of something I never thought I would see, which is a right-wing party in Spain. So Vox is likely to get about 10% of the vote next time round. Uh, Italy, the centre parties have completely collapsed. You have a dual populist government. Germany, the centre still holds just, but the SPD seems to be in terminal decline with the rise of the AFD and the Greens. Macron covers over the fact that the entire French party system has collapsed. And the UK is just obsessed in dealing only with Brexit for the past two years. In that type of politics, I think it's very hard to talk about trust between governments, because what that rested on or seemed to rest on was a kind of technocratic understanding of politics, which was very much the politics of the 1990s and the pre-crisis period, where there are good policies, we don't have to worry about distribution, etc. And all of that, I think, given the crisis, has just been blown away. And now we've got a technocratic set of institutions at the EU level, which is trying to do the right thing, given the hand they've been dealt. But the domestic politics underneath them has shifted in ways that we haven't even really begun to comprehend. Yeah, look, I can only applaud that statement, Mark. Uh, the the conflicts of interest were always inherent. Just on Germany, uh, you know, it, it is true that the linguistic uh, use of debt comes in the way. But 
on the monetary union from Willy Brandt through uh, Schmidt, through Kohl, even Kohl, the great uh, pro-European Kohl, twice said to the Bundestag in, in April 1998, ladies and gentlemen, we will not pay the bills of other countries. The German view on not paying the bills of other countries has been completely consistent. You can say that this is not a good thing or not a bad uh, or, or uh, they should do otherwise, but they have been completely consistent for over a half a century on this matter. The, the fault, therefore, was to enter into the monetary union, not to blame uh, the Germans about a view that, on which they have been completely clear for such a long time. And what Mark is now saying is that overlaying that inherent conflict. You have a political fragmentation in each of the countries, which makes the technocratic resolution of these problems even harder. And that's why this becomes such an important historical critical juncture that we are approaching later this year when, as I think, Brendan, uh, I overheard you say, the Chinese economy, even if it does not have a hard landing, will inevitably slow down. China has to slow down. China cannot keep growing at 6% a year. With Chinese slowdown comes an inevitable slowdown in world trade growth. With a slowdown in world trade growth comes an inevitable slowdown in Eurozone growth. We are leading to an economic and political conjuncture over here where the Eurozone is set on a long-term basis to slow down and we are set on, a, on a, at least a medium-term basis to have dysfunctional politics to resolve these extraordinarily complex uh, international coordination issues. Germany is adjusting as we speak, and it has a long-term and a short-term uh, version. The long-term version is that it is an aging society that has uh, already now, say, the national railways, the Bundesbahn has a huge uh, a deficit of train drivers that it can't get. And it will fill these posts and it will fill them with, with immigrants or uh, whatever. The other thing is capital flows that for once also make German housing markets overheat as unlikely that that always seemed. And German government tried immediately to get in with uh, rent controls, more or less, uh, and so on and so forth. So it does notice that. And this could be this reorientation of the German economy that at the moment is only reported as a recession. I say it's also slowing down from an overheating that it had through this being a safe haven, um, could be supported and directed with, with much better policies, with rise in public sector pay and employment. Uh, but, you know, uh, German treasury ministers have to come around to it. And as Mark says, the Social Democrats have to lose even more before they understand that they should actually do a bit of a alternative policy, namely doing something for the domestic economy uh, that is not necessarily always on the supply side, but simply giving people a bit more purchasing power uh, so that they can also exercise demand, perhaps for goods from the rest of the euro area and the rest of the world. This, I hope, will come. The real exchange rate for Germany is increasing and that will create some some adjustment. We saw it also in the wage bargains. Um, whether China is the trigger or something else uh, doesn't matter. Germany is a big destabilizing factor in the whole eurozone. That is simply true. Uh, it makes it so much harder for everybody else to adjust uh, in that way. And um, the pressure from the United States, uh, from everywhere else, 
will make some some change there. But I do resent this constant talk because it, it, it creates that myth as if the Germans would pay for anything. Now, they have paid forever on their to maintain their capital export surplus and have forgiven in the Paris club their, their claims on the rest of the, of the world repeatedly when it was business related. But just like the United States after the Second World War, you don't want open-ended uh, obligations vis-a-vis -vis other fiscal authorities because you to some extent rightly say this is your problem and you are de democratically legitimated to raise taxes and to and spend. This is not our problem. While on the other hand, Germany has subsidized and, and forgiven that repeatedly when it suited its policy of maintaining this export surplus that seems to be a, the hallmark of its national pride, not the constitution as Habermas always says. I'm interested in the comparison to the United States because both you and Ashoka have made it. Um, I, and I think it's a point well made that you can look to the Constitution of the United States, uh, but the United States did not think of itself as a single country really until the awful, bloody catastrophe of the Civil War, which killed uh, more Americans than any conflict since. Um, one of the things that have come out of, several things that have come out of, of that ever closer union in the U.S. have been things that we've talked about here. The possibility of common deposit insurance, which only again happened after a terrible financial crisis in the United States. Uh, or the idea that you would have a, a common social security system, which again came out of more conflict. So tell me a positive story, because I haven't heard one yet today, and I'm just I'm itching for one. Um, lay out ways in which a coming crisis could figure out how to make the Eurozone stronger, how to make these institutions, which are not fit for purpose right now, fit for purpose. I'll just make a very brief statement, and then Waltrud will give you the main answer. All the history that you have described of the United States is true. However, what is still true is that all those conflicts were resolved, deep as they were and intractable as they were, they were resolved within the framework of a constitution that gave, that created a federal government with unlimited authority to tax. Within that system that was already put in place, it nevertheless required enormous crises to resolve those each of those successive problems. For Europe, we don't have anything that is comparable. Therefore, any ability of a crisis to generate a positive, constructive outcome is severely handicapped by the fact that there isn't an existing umbrella constitution that creates a federal government and that gives the president authority, executive authority and Congress the right to tax. I don't quite understand why one repeats this because it's not something you can force on anybody, right? This needs to be a process that happens. It hasn't happened and the crisis hasn't made it easier to say to Europeans, look, now we have to go the full way and turning the whole rationale on its head. We wanted to have a, a common currency because it would improve conditions for business and so on. Now we're saying we need much more political integration to stabilize that currency. I mean, that is a nonsense and a non-starter and would have to be stopped tomorrow. I mean, I would be one of the first if we say that is the, so to speak, the Ultima ratio has now to be, you create a fiscal federation only to, to stabilize this currency. 
the point is the other way around. I think the Europeans really try something new, and although on tested principles, and they have created a more stable union than the United States throughout is 160 years until the New Deal, basically. The scenario that I have in mind, Brendan, is Italy is probably the weakest link and may through some faults of its own, others not so much the fault of its own and certainly not of any single uh, actor, will have a banking crisis or a bond crisis. Italy is too big to be saved in a simple way in with the existing institutions that have been created in the last 10 years. So what is going to happen, the ESM will start to buy bonds directly. It can now buy bonds directly from the Italian sovereign. That can run out, even 500 billion, maybe not enough to deal with a 1.7 trillion bond market. And at that point, they will probably find some way of giving the ESM some access to ECB resources. And this is the way of how all other central banks could stop this diabolic loop between bank uh, and sovereign weaknesses. The EU has now in place, it needs to do that last step. Uh, it will not be easy and it will be acrimonious. But I think in contrast to the 10 years ago, you have now institutions in place that can, in principle, when, when push comes to shove, play that role. And we need to think further along those lines. How can you build, so to speak, the functionality of a fiscal federation without its acrimonious politics? Uh, Ashoka, I'll just tell you, if you do a bit of this Southern history, you find that after the Civil War, the next few decades, the South became poorer and poorer. And this is a process we have to stop. Otherwise, I do feel with mature democracies, you cannot uh, support a, a European Union forever if that process happens. I want to wrap this up with a discussion of politics because we do have European Parliament elections coming up and they, they're sort of often seen as meaningless. Uh, and I'm wondering w whether they might become meaningful accidentally this time, given the pressures that are on the Eurozone. But I, I, I'm Mark, I'm going to throw this to you. Uh, Ashoka has a, a theory about no saviors, that you have uh, Matteo Renzi and Emmanuel Macron, and they both suffer the same fate, which is they're both supposed to be these, there are these young, technocratic, charismatic leaders uh, who are supposed to show up and provide all the solution, and they're running bang up against the same structural problems that everybody had before them. So is there a political solution. You know, we've talked about how the institutions might change. We've talked about the uh, the conditions that have not changed, that have not been fixed uh, by the introduction of the euro. But is there a political solution to this? Is, is there a savior? So one of the things that I think all social scientists struggle with is whether or not they believe that agency or structure, to use that language, is dominant. And that is to say, we've spent a conversation really talking about all of these institutions and rules and structures and how things are so difficult and it's fragile, but at the same time, they're constraining, etc. And then a kind of automatic response is, well, in that case, we need some agent that's going to move it along. And what, that was Monte, then it was Renzi, and then it's Macron, and, and they all seem to be you know, less than the saviors that we hope in that regard. So I think that that's true. But again, to go back to what Walter had said, 
ultimately there will be some kind of banking crisis in Italy. That is pretty much written in the stars. And at that moment in time, it's the institutions that you have, the ideas that you have on how to resolve these crises, and that moment when agency becomes particularly important that determines the outcomes. So it's not that there's one person that's going to come along that's going to be the saviour. That's wrong. But in terms of actually maintaining the system at the very least, making it work for the South, making it work for the bottom 50%, these are real issues that all developed economies are dealing with. And we're going to have to just use the tools and ideas we've got lying around to try and make it work as best we can, because the alternative is to basically give it to the populace. And my big worry there is, what happens when they fail? That's always the concern. When they fail, what's next? That could be even more shocking. One thing that has uh, that has fascinated me throughout this whole conversation is that all of us adopted the idea of original sin and applied it to different concepts within the Eurozone, but we all feel like there's some original sin there <laughs> that may be uncorrectable. Anyway, um, thank you, all of you, uh, Valtraud uh, and Ashoka and, and Mark for this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville. As always, we want to hear from you. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. For my part, I promise to pay more attention to Italy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.